Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. everybody welcome to another episode of true crime and cocktails famous fatalities edition as always i am your host lauren ash and as always i am joined by my co-hostess with the most s christy oxborough how you feeling you know this week i'm good that hey, <laughs> that, that's that good. felt like more of a question than an answer I'm, I'm i don't feel frantic i wasn't hurried i sent my a timeline to you that i send every week an hour ahead of schedule which yeah. was Amazing, because I sent it an hour and a half after schedule last week. <laughs> uh, yep. But this week, it was just, it was more like I got it done. It was a, a bear to get through. The problem with this week was uh, mentally, it probably bothered me more than anything we've done before. Wow. Prin- Princess Diana, I cried watching yeah. the uh, documentaries. But this, I watched uh, the documentary to go with it, and it was upsetting, (laughs) as it should be, because it made its point. Yeah. And then the more I researched, the more just angry. Like, my husband has put up with a lot of just like, ugh, from like across the room. And he's like, what's up? And I'm like, nothing. And he goes, ah, the case. And I'm like, "Mm mm-hmm. And then like, it's just... There's so there's just been a lot of tension this week, but I could not be more excited to be sitting across from my gal. It's all I want, you know. It's all I want. Listen, like I've said before, there's a lot of stress. There's a lot of sleepless nights. <laughs> but when we sit down and hit record on this Zoom, that's mm-hmm. when it's all worth it. You know what I mean? That's when it's all this worth is, it. This is why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the waterworks start so soon. Listen, a couple of quick things. One, this episode is airing uh, for the first time June 1st. It's dropping June 1st, which means we are officially in Pride Month 2021 and kicking off the True Crime and Cocktails Pride Month uh, edition of the show where we're doing, you know, obviously a focus 
on Pride-related cases, um, not only on the podcast, but also on our social media channels, which you're going to want to keep an eye out for uh, all month long. Christy has been working tirelessly to prep so much stuff. It's really, I mean, you always work so hard and prep so much stuff, but this, I feel like you've really gone above and beyond. Well, this I had to I had to do it over the course of like a couple of weeks where I had spare time in and amongst uh, doing our regular show. It, it was just a case of we we get a lot of requests to do specific like LGBTQ2 plus. I believe they are now again. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yep. I apologize if I am cases, especially trans cases. I know there are a ton out there. And so I started looking into some to see what are some possibilities for our show and a lot of them there's just like zero info it'll just be who the person is the fact that they died and when they died and like that's it and so I thought well I don't know how entertaining two hours of me just reading a list of names would be Uh, we're about to find out because there's a lot of names in this episode (laughs) some that are over 20 letters long so Brace yourself for that. Wow. I still haven't figured out how to pronounce that one yet, but that's that's fine. So yeah, the plan came up of just post a case a day just to show, just more for the sake of we just want to spotlight it, get their name out there, get their face out there, and hope that it helps do something. Exactly. If nothing else, raise awareness. Right? Raising awareness. I think that the the real big takeaway going into you know this month uh, for us in terms of the show is what Christy just outlined was you know she's been looking into all of these cases and there's just so little that is done about so many of these um, especially trans murders that it's tough to build an entire episode of the show around it and that's also why we thought it would be important then to take to take the time and uh, put them on the social networks that we've got so you know again keep an eye on our instagram facebook at true crime and cocktails and twitter at not detectives for all of that Also, this month has been exciting uh, because today marks the launch of our special Pride t-shirts, the True Crime and Cocktails Pride t-shirts that are going to be on sale just for the month of June. Uh, And we're going to be giving 50% of all of the profits from those shirts to The Trevor Project, which is an amazing, amazing LGBTQ2 plus youth charity. I've been to some of their events here uh, in LA and uh, they do amazing work, suicide prevention, offering suicide hotlines, when you hear the stories of the lives they've touched and the lives that, that you know, some people say they've saved, very powerful stuff. So uh, it's very exciting. So make sure to get one of those, which segues seam- seamlessly into our new merch store, which also launched today to the public. Now, Christy obviously has, you know, every week with the show, the research, etc. And then she'll do something like she'll teach herself how to edit a video promo or something, and I'm in awe. And then one day, I I just decided to make a merch store. And I know what you're thinking, oh, how hard can it be? Well, it was about a weekend that I realized that maybe I had chosen, <laughs> like, a small business option rather than a just a quick kind of, like, um, tool that you could implement with. So long story short, I uh, I've been doing this all day, every day. <laughs> For weeks, I am a shell. I, <laughs> I was up designing shirts last night uh, until 3 or 3.30 in the morning. It's become an obsession, a passion. At one point, Christy texted me and said, I'm so sorry. And then I just responded, you didn't tell me to do this. <laughs> 
So I'm very excited, though. It has truly become my baby, and I hope that people are excited. There's so many cool options and items on there, and we get lots of requests for more merch. So this is You Spoke, We Listened. TrueCremaCocktails.com slash merch is where you're going to be able to find all of that. And I also just want to say, people often reach out. They're having trouble finding something, this, that, or the other. Consider TrueCremaCocktails.com the True Creme and Cocktails Google. You know what I mean? You're looking for anything. Yeah. Go there because you'll probably be able to find it. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you need if you need anything about us, that's where it's going to be. That's where it's going to be. You're going to find the links. You're going to find your answers. It's a treasure trove. And then the last piece of business we wanted to get into is that we are also going to have a contest because we didn't, we both have not bitten off We've bitten off far more than we can chew, and we're taking another bite, and we're liking it, is the point. It's been a while since we've Mm -hmm. done a giveaway, since we've done a contest. We miss it, and we are gluttons for punishment. So we are going to be doing a giveaway to enter to win one of our new True Crime Cocktails Pride shirts. Go to one of all of our socials, and you can learn how to enter there. We're not going to take time now, because, it's again, it's all there. It's all there for you to read. Yeah, and also, we do record these in advance, so... yeah. We the, also uh, don't know the ins and outs of what we the don't, contest We don't is. know the answer. <laughs> we don't know the answer off offhand. But never fear. Just go check it out. And you know what? By the next episode we record, I will have the answer yeah. that I can give everyone. But for now, you're thinking, how do you not have the answer? I do. It's on our social media at truecrimeandcocktails.com. There you go. All right, so that's all the business. We're so excited. We're so happy to have this special themed month of the show. Lots of fun. Lots of, you know, again, spreading awareness to happen. The next thing I need awareness about, however, is what you drinking over there? Well, you know what? (laughs) It's been a week. Yeah. Uh, More mentally than anything else. And I'm learning it's been a week for you as well. It has. And then I thought... Like, you know what? I had some palm bays in the fridge. So I'm like, just get one and you know you want that. But then I was like, you know what? We're starting off Pride Month. Yeah. We should be a little celebratory, maybe. So to that, the only thing I can say. Choo choo. <laughs> no. Brandy has come out. Brandy's with us. Oh my gosh. Brandy loves Pride. So I think. <laughs> It feels right that she's there. Because it does. if there's a Blanche at Pride, she's going to have Brandy with her, I guarantee it. Oh my gosh. Now listen, if you're a new listener to us, if you're like, what are you talking about? Let me tell you, what, when was the first time we met Brandy? Do you remember? <laughs> I do. <laughs> Burned in your brain? Yep. It was the, oh God, don't fail me on the episode title, Death at the Oslo Hotel? Death in Oslo, yeah. Death in Oslo, there we go. Oh. See, I knew I'd get it eventually. Yeah. I believe it's episode seven oh. for those keeping track. Yeah. Because that was the day, it was the first time I was truly, truly frazzled <laughs> and running very late for the record. And then I just like printed off my notes, quickly changed, grabbed the notes, filled my drink with what I thought was cherry whiskey, which is something I enjoy, and then took a sip and found out it was actually cherry brandy because my lovely husband had had grabbed the wrong bottle at the liquor store. Same shape bottle, same label, same everything. You just, just one little word. If you don't Mm. pay attention, there you go. World of difference. Um, A world of difference, one word. Yeah. Yeah. 
And uh, I didn't like it. I think I choked down that first drink, but I make my two drinks in advance. So I had no, I was like, I'm, I'm not going to waste. And then it just, it hit me differently than alcohols I'd had before. And before you know it, I was just a full mess. Yeah. And I think at some point that I, I did the train sound and that's how it started, right? I don't remember what led to it. Yeah. It was one of those things where it was like Brandy's, Brandy's taking the wheel. <laughs> Like Brandy's driving the train was what it was. Yeah. And that, that, that was like, sounds... and then I started, I, I don't know, one of us did it the first time and then it became a running bit where it was like, choot, choot, here she comes, yeah. Brandy, ladies and gentlemen. So you just have to say it once and then you know exactly. what we're talking about. And I'm yeah. so glad that she's guesting with us here tonight. That's so exciting. Yeah. I don't know what she's going to bring. And I'm already realizing when that cherry Brandy is gone, I'm going to buy another one, aren't I? <laughs> like this started with me being like, oof. No thanks, and has turned into what you gonna do? Like I'm currently like I'm sitcom, cut to commercial with the wah, wah, you know, like that's where I'm at. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, as far as brandy goes, you're literally drinking something tonight that you don't really enjoy the taste of for the bit, which I respect. <laughs> yeah, you know what? It's slowly growing on me. Yeah, it is. It is no cherry whiskey, but it is. Not much either, but the, but the point is, it's it's fine, and just a splash of lime in there and makes everything better. Uh, absolutely. It's always time for lime. Nope. I nope. Think Brandy, is... now's not the time. I think there. <laughs> oh wow! It's wow. We're, we're twelve and a half minutes in. This bodes well. Why are all my nicknames B names? Blanche and Brandy. Oh wow! Yeah. We still haven't even found one for me. <laughs> Oh. I, I have a I have a suggestion that we can mold into something that you like. I'm listening. Somewhere in my notes, I do call you it for the first time. Oh, listen. Well, then I well what? we'll play along at home. We don't. You don't have to. You don't have to like uh, spoil it. Because I thought of it while I was uh, writing out a certain section, and then I just went, "How is? How are we not calling her that? You're gonna be like, is that?" what we want to call me but who knows we'll see it'll be a it'll be a fun game for everyone to play where i'll say a word and they'll be like is that it yeah I'll, follow I along hope, <laughs> i hope that i'll let you know what i really like is that there's i i don't want to know what the trigger words are going to be for people that they think are the nickname no, you know what i don't mean don't tell us don't tell no. me because it's not going to be something that's <laughs> flattering i guess i just know it it'll be like loud you know what i mean <laughs> It'll be like, oh, Little Miss Loud or something. You know what I mean? It's not going to be. It's First not be. of all, if they're calling you that, they're calling me that. <laughs> I learned that years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Listen, I like volume. I What am I drinking? Well, you'll like this. I've got a Diet Coke on the go with a cut down <laughs> recycled Starbucks, Starbucks straw. straw. Yep. Because I, I do enjoy a straw uh, yes. when I have an iced coffee. I don't love the sippy cup lid I slop it all over myself but I also really care about the sea turtles so I recycle I bring them home I wash them and I reuse them I am our grandmother anyway <laughs> uh so <laughs> washing ziplocs god bless her anyway yeah. I am I have gone for an old favorite because it it reminds me that summer's here and that is a oh. high noon it's a peach high noon oh, now these nice. again not a sponsor of the show but these are delicious the peach flavor I really like peach flavored things. And you know what's funny? My dog's name is Peaches. 
and she's obviously a, a, a rescue, a senior rescue when I when I got her. And I I think that subconsciously part of the reason why I was interested was because her name was Peaches. Honestly, like I don't I never put it together at the time. My favorite candy mm-hmm. is fuzzy peaches from back home. Yeah. Not the peach rings from down here, specifically the Canadian fuzzy peaches. Yeah. And then a peach fa- flavored beverage? Get real. Get real. Yeah. The best there is. This all makes sense. And you know what has just popped in my mind? Grandma taught me how to recycle. Did she? She did. I distinctly remember this was before recycling was a thing. This was before, like, you had bins at your house that were specifically for recycling. And we were visiting, and I remember she had made something for a meal, and she had an empty can of tuna. It also could have been a cat food can. I just remember a can that had, like, stuff in it that I was, like, not interested in. Sure. And I saw it, and I was like, Grandma, did you need me to, do you want me to throw this out? And she was like, oh, no. Do you throw them out at home? And I was like, I I, I think so. Like, I didn't know that was wrong. But then she was just like, she explained, like, this is what you do, but you have to make sure you clean it first. And then, like, I stood there and watched, watched her wash this can. And then she's like, and now it can go in the recycling. And I was like, recycling? What a great idea. As though she came up with it herself. Listen. Um, and now, to this day, not only do I have a recycling bin pretty much everywhere in this house, I also put one in each bathroom because you always have the toilet paper rolls and the empty shampoo bottles, which you rinse out. And then what are you going to do? Go all the way to the garbage or throw them in the garbage? Nope. And I learned that little tip from Melissa Joan Hart. <laughs> Wowzer. She did some sort of, I think, a commercial or something, some sort of ad online I had seen somewhere years ago. Oh, God, I'm going to feel like an ass if it wasn't her. But uh, she was like, it was something about Earth Day. And she was like, you know what? You know what helps with the Earth? Here's a tip. Put a recycling bin in the in the bathroom. And I was like, huh. Because then the toilet paper rolls just sit there or else they go in the garbage. Because no one takes it immediately and then goes and puts it in the recycling. So now we have a recycling in each of our bathrooms and it works. Well, so I want to let you, you heard it here, folks. I you heard it here. Recycling works. I, <laughs> it, there is some science to it. Now, I want to blow your mind and let you in on a little spoiler, yes. which is that I also have a recycling uh, in my. Uh, now, I don't have one in the guest bath. I probably should. But in my master bathroom, I do. For the same reason. Yeah. I want to believe that Melissa Joan Hart got to you too, but I don't know if you've seen the same video. I I've seen. thought that I came up with it. Honestly, I was like, "This is brilliant," <laughs> but it wasn't me. I I know no, that. Oh, you know. hey, if you had never heard the idea before, and you thought of it yourself, even if someone had thought of it before you, if you didn't know about it, technically you kind of made it. You came up with it yourself. You know, that reminds me. Uh, shout out to my mom. She'll appreciate this, that I'm sharing this story. There was, in my hometown of Belleville, Ontario, Canada, shout out, we had the Quinney Mall. But on the yeah. other side of town, there was something called the Belleville Plaza. And it was a much, much, very, very small, very small, I guess you could call it a mall, but but plaza is more of a, like, it was, very, it was all indoor, but very tiny. And sure. they decided to do a rebranding. They decided, you know what? 
the, the plaza is not getting any love. There's like no good stores sure. in here. We're going to have a contest to rename the plaza. Yeah. And yep. my mother submitted uh, a submission that was the Bayview Mall because oh. we're, we're right on the Bay of Quinty there. And guess what she won? She won the contest and they were like, listen, congratulations, you won. Come to the newly named Bayview Mall at such and such a time on such and such a day and get your prize. So she's jazzed. Over the moon. <laughs> yeah. Very excited. And she and I go and we get there and there is literally a crowd of no fewer than I want to say probably 150 to 200 people because 150 to 200 people had all suggested the name, the Bayview Mall. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. No. So, <laughs> so what they did was they put everybody's name like in a hat. And then the way they did it was really sad where they drew names. And then it was literally like they drew until there was only one left. So it was like the last name we draw is going to get the prize. Isn't that kind of a crappy way to do it? So then it was like, you're just, you just did a sit, I guess they wanted to like make it last longer or something. I don't know. But I think there was like, oh. like a first, second and third prize or something. So they, they just drew and then like the third last name got the third prize and so on. But I'll never forget. <laughs> I'll never forget coming up on that. And like, it's like the moment in the Simpsons where they're like with the video of Ralph Wiggum and they're like, you can hear the moment his heart broke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that moment yeah it felt like yeah. that where i was like oh dear oh mom i mean great great name obviously it won but, but great yeah. in this case great minds thought alike i i thought it was gonna be like there was a crowd and then it was okay she wanted it to be a more sizable crowd to watch her win her prize and then it turns out they didn't call people to watch you win they just called everyone else who did <laughs> what yeah. A bummer. Yeah. What a bummer. I also now envision that she has like a business card that underneath says inventor of creator of Bayview Mall. <laughs> I think you know? that she should. And if she's listening, which I know she is, uh, mom, get those yeah. cards printed. You know what I mean? Come on. She's retired yeah. now. Also, congrats to mom for retiring. So maybe now's the time she could look into naming some more buildings. <laughs> 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 you know? Yeah. I mean, hey, she started naming buildings. Maybe it's time look into the ad agency. I don't know why. Well, I'm still thinking about the all-female version of Mad Men. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Listen, I mean, there so was just tweets saying. about that this week. Some of our listeners were tweeting about that, I noticed. I'm also realizing now that an all-female version would mean Ben Feldman couldn't be there. Uh... Um, but couldn't he be, like, the secretary? Yeah. Him and John Ham can be the ones that have to do everything that all the women so tell them. So rather to. than an all female version, you're just thinking of a of a like gender flip. Like an inversion. I I, I guess so. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that could work. Because I want all the women to be bosses mm -hmm. and I feel even the the uh, assistants I want I want all the women to have power and the men to have none. <laughs> <laughs> that comes from a real place. Yeah. A real place. Yeah. Somewhere in there. Oh, there have been a lot of male suspects that I've dealt with in the last few months. Yeah. And that anger has grown. Yeah. The basement <laughs> changed you. Uh, we all know it. We've started referring yeah. to, to Christy as basement Christy 
And then earlier today when I was truly, truly frazzled, I said, I think I'm I'm officially basement Lauren. So <laughs> we're a good pair. We're a good pair. Yeah. Once once you go basement, you don't go back. Yeah. So well so welcome. Thank you. It's a welcoming place. It's it's a lot, but it's welcoming. You, me, Brandy, it's gonna be great. It's gonna be great. Oh, oh yeah. I love it. Oh. oh, well, let's get into it. Listen, I wanted to just also give a very quick shout out before we, we continue. I forgot to in our, our early preamble because I was so excited about getting through everything. I want to just give out a, a shout out to our listener, Stephen, because he was somebody who I remember suggested that we should we should cover some stuff for Pride Month. And we heard and we said, you know what? He's right. So here we are. So shout out to Stephen. Thank you for your support and your suggestion. Stephen is lovely. There you go. FYI to the folks listening at home. Absolutely. So this episode we're going to be talking about, it's a documentary, right? This is the name of the documentary, just confirming? Yes. Yes. Great. So we're going to be talking about a documentary called Deep Water, The Real Story. So I'll give you a little synopsis about what this is all about. A little bit of a different format today, which I like, because this isn't just one case, which is very interesting. No, we are going to hit on a lot of cases, and again, forgive me. Oh. For the name, pronunciations, most most are going to be great. Most you're going to be like, oh, she did fine. And then we're going to get to the point where unless I just hit it and run, it's going to, there's going to be a lead in to me bracing myself for it. <laughs> Listen, we are all here. You're in a safe space. So no worries yeah. on that. All right. So deep water, the real story. During the 70s, 80s, and 90s, more than 80 gay men were either reported missing or found dead along the Sydney coastline. Bias from the police caused most of the cases to be investigated poorly, while some cases weren't investigated at all. It wasn't until a detective received letters from a grieving mother begging for her son's case to be solved that a full investigation was actually started. Have the police set aside their own bias enough to do their job effectively? And can these cases finally be solved decades later? Ooh. Now, I spy with my little eye, Sydney Coastline. Yeah. We're talking about Australia, aren't we? We are. Wow, and that's the other fun thing about this is we have, I think, I think the only time we've branched outside of North America so far in our episodes has been the, uh, the House of Terror uh, well, and and death in Oslo. And death in Oslo. Yeah. I mentioned it earlier. God and damn it, and Princess Diana. But yes, uh, <laughs> other than those three, so, so multiple, multiple. Yeah, but this yeah. is our first Australian uh, case. Yeah, it sure there you is. go. <laughs> I swear, I I am here every week. Doesn't seem like I am, but I promise. Listen, I promise that I'm here. Oh, you're doing great. You're doing great. We all love you. We all love you. Oh, Me the most. Right. Me well, the most. Well, brace yourself because I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> I was so excited about getting my notes done on time that uh, I couldn't tell you what even half of them say. So best of luck to us all. Of course. Oh, boy. I've given myself an intro. She can't be stopped. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I'm ready. She can't, she can't be stopped. When we decided we wanted to devote some of our June episodes to the LGBTQ2 plus cases, one of the first hits in my Google search was the documentary Deep Water, The Real Story. All I had to do was read the synopsis that mentioned up to 80 murders, 30 unsolved cases, and thousands of assaults, and I knew it was something that I wanted to look into. For one thing, 
the cases were based in Australia, and since most of our episodes have been in America, I thought it would be a nice change. And I know that we have True Crew members in Australia, so I thought they might like something that has more familiar surroundings. So if I botch the names of some of the places you live near, I am so sorry. I also chose this case because I was just baffled by the enormity of it and the fact that I hadn't heard of any of these cases involved. Then I watched the documentary and honestly, I barely made it through. Wow. For those who haven't seen it, if you can find it somewhere on the magical interweb, I strongly encourage you to give it a watch. But I warn, it is a tough watch. Uh, I think it's important, though, especially for people who may not be familiar with the LGBTQ2 plus community. I want to preface all of this by saying that, unfortunately, not every case has much information available. So I will spend more time talking about some victims as opposed to others. But that's simply based on the amount of information I was able to find, not based on any sort of preference. Right. I also want to say that, unfortunately, I didn't have time to look up all 80 plus cases. I initially thought that maybe I could try just the 30 unsolved cases, but even I have my limitations. <laughs> so I, I chose to focus on the cases within the Bondi Tamarama area, as well as a few that kind of fit in with the other stories. Anything that I could kind of link together for a cohesive episode, because uh, I want to I want to educate, but also entertain. I'm edutainment trying to be Bill Nye the science guy again. <laughs> Christy, she's a science nerd. We all know it. Yeah. Oh, boy. So I've chosen to focus on what's known as the Sydney Cliff murders, which is still somehow so unknown that as of May 2021, it doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. Wow. The Sydney Cliff murders involved a series of murders from the late 70s through the 90s against gay men in Eastern Australia. It is said that at the time, Sydney was becoming the San Francisco of the Southern Hemisphere. But at the time, there's no internet or cell phones or dating apps like Grindr or Tinder, so there's no easy way to arrange, let us call them, casual encounters. Areas, known as gay beats, became very popular for arranging liaisons, especially at night. They were exciting, enticing, and sometimes dangerous. The gay beats offered a place for closeted men to come out and for some married men to enjoy the anonymity. They were also ideal sites for violent perpetrators as they were secluded and often frequented at night. We're also going to talk about a lot of people I hate and I don't know much about them except their name. So I'm just going to angrily say their name. Ooh, yeah, <laughs> you know? I'll, I'm on board. So, yep. You know, it's like I'm shaking my fist, but mm -hmm. somehow just with my vocal cords. Uh, however, the 1980s also brought the HIV and AIDS epidemic, which caused mass hysteria and a backlash against the gays. I shouldn't probably have worded it that way. I'm so sorry. Against <laughs> the gay community. Allies! I promise we're allies! We're trying so oh. hard to be allies! Oh, boy. Against the gay community. There we go. A 1987 AIDS awareness commercial on TV featured a grim reaper taking out men, women, and children, suggesting that they were all at risk because of gay men. The tagline was, quote, prevention is the only cure we've got. 
So this really amped up the homophobes and yeah. these raging assholes decided to use the gay beats as their backdrop for brutal attacks and murders. And as though the crimes weren't bad enough, the police at the time didn't seem too keen on solving the cases or even interested in investigating them at all, labeling most of them as suicides and accidents. It's important to remember that sex between men was wasn't decriminalized until 1984. I'm not excusing the police's shitty attitude. I'm just saying that because being gay was no longer a criminal offense doesn't mean that the attitudes were going to change as quickly as they should have. Right. So these cases inspired a four-episode TV miniseries called Deep Water, which was then followed by the documentary Deep Water, The Real Story. Again, I give the warning... Some of the details are graphic. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not for the sake of shock. It's just for the sake of, I I mean, I didn't realize some things went as bad as this. And I just feel that people should know these are things we should be aware of, is what I'm saying. Yeah. As allies, which we are, again, so, so sorry. Oh, heaven forbid. Okay. So you're also probably going to get super angry yeah. at most of the things that are I'm going to say, but I think it's important we get the names out there and to help us remind, help remind us of how far humanity has come, but how far we have yet to go. Absolutely. Again, I don't know what grade 12 English paper I thought I was writing, but here we go. I love it. Oh boy. So the first case, which is a little north of Sydney was Paul Rath in June 1977. A fisherman found Paul's body at the base of a 50 meter, 164 feet cliff on an isolated pocket of North Head near Ferry Bower. The area was a popular gay beat at the time, but there is no evidence as to whether or not Paul was actually gay. But it is possible he was killed by someone who assumed he was gay because he was in the area. His pants were found around his knees, so is it possible he was attacked? Possibly. When he was a teenager, Paul had a nervous breakdown, so he was on medications for anxiety. Police suggested that this proved that Paul's death was a suicide, despite the fact that Paul was a devout Catholic. Paul's parents suggested that maybe he simply lost his balance and fell accidentally. I just don't know who pulls their pants halfway down and then jumps. Yeah, you know. <clears throat> yeah, that you know? feels or if I mean what are the reasons why you you pull your pants down in public or or outside also like if you're going to the bathroom, you, you, nature calls, yeah. but it also feels like do you do that that close to the edge of a of a cliff? I would say typically no. You would think not, yeah. but again, that's uh Starting out small because we're just going to oh, have more questions and more anger. I bet. Uh, a similar case is that of 29-year-old Paul Scheel. Paul's body was found with, quote, multiple injuries at the base of a small cliff at Gordons Bay in April 1983. Paul's family claims that he wasn't gay, but that he was schizophrenic and on medication, but that the night of his death, he was in good spirits. Police listed Paul's death as, quote, misadventure uh but paul's brother said quote his behavior could be reckless and it is quite possible he was mistaken for being gay and attacked for that reason 
It might also have been a suicide, although if you look at the point where he died, it's not likely a choice, as it's only a couple stories high, there were plenty of higher cliffs further down. So if he really wanted to jump, you right. think he would have chosen a different spot? Who knows? I don't know. I'm also quick to lean towards the attack because the area was a gay beat that was known for homophobic gang activity and the fact that Paul's body was found without pants. Sadly, Paul was probably just in the wrong place at the wrong time, although to be fair, he had the right to be there. And uh, I wish great pain and suffering on the people who are part of these gangs. (laughs) And we'll get into my anger on them as the evening goes on. But more on my hatred of them coming up later. (laughs) It's like I wrote my own newscast. I love it. Uh, The next case in the Sydney Cliffs epidemic is David Williams. Now, unfortunately, I couldn't find much about David, not even a photo, uh, which adds to my point that these cases didn't get enough attention that they deserved. All I know is that David was found naked at the bottom of the cliffs near Manly, and his clothes were found neatly folded at the top of the cliffs. This happened in 1979, and while I would love to be more informative for our listeners, there was no investigation whatsoever on his death, not even an autopsy. Really? Really. Wow. Then we have Gilles Matinet, a 27-year-old French national living in Bondi. Gilles was last seen by a neighbor on September 15th, 1985, walking the path along the cliffs between Bondi and Tamarama. He has not been seen since. The best that I could find about Gilles' case was simply his description of a white-slash-European appearance, approximately 5'5", between 120 and 130 pounds, clean-shaven with collar-length brown hair. And if the lack of details wasn't sad enough, Gilles wasn't officially reported missing until 2002. Whoa! Which is 17 years after he was, was last Was there seen. any reason that that, that that had happened, that you had found? Not that I could find. Wow. I just, like, even if he had no family, what about wherever he was staying? Well, like, also... would they have been like... But that just... This also smells to me of, was his family, and I am I'm not suggesting this. We don't know them. We know nothing about them. But obviously, as you have stated, 1984 was when it was decriminalized. Mm-hmm. So is it possible yeah. that when this had occurred, 1985, he went missing, perhaps... It's possible that people did not weren't agreeing with his lifestyle, and it wasn't until years later that they they decided to file that missing person. But that is, oh God, yeah, this is. I know we're just getting into it, and I'm already my heart is very heavy. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, <laughs> it's not going to get any better. Yeah, the fourth victim of the Sydney Cliff murders is 27 year old Scott Johnson. Scott was an American mathemat- math- mathematics prodigy who moved to Australia to be with his boyfriend, Michael Noon. Scott had almost completed his PhD at the Australian National University and had just applied for permanent residency. On December 10th, 1988, a spear fisherman found Scott's body at the bottom of Bluefish Point at North Head near Manly. Scott was naked and his clothes were folded in a pile with a $10 bill, his student ID, and his watch resting on top. Police immediately ruled Scott's death a suicide, and three months later, a coroner agreed that Scott had jumped from the 60-meter, 197-foot cliff. 
Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I, I see where this is going. Mm-hmm. Michael Noon admitted that five years or admitted five years before that Scott had admitted to him he contemplated jumping from the Golden Gate Bridge after concerns that he may have contracted HIV. Scott claimed that when he got to the bridge, his muscles froze over and he couldn't continue, so he changed plans and went home. Michael said that despite this moment, Scott has had no signs of potential suicide since then. And I get that suicide can happen out of nowhere, but that's now two different men who were found at the bottom of a cliff near Manly after leaving their clothes neatly piled on top. And that just feels really suspicious to me. Who gets naked to jump off a cliff? And if you're going to leave the world as naked as the day you came in, why bother folding your clothes? Yeah, if one person did that, it's a quirk. Two people doing that, it's like, again, based in the same time period, the same area, Mm -hmm. the same cliff, either jumping or being pushed. I agree with you that that definitely feels like, well, I mean, I don't know if there's another one, but I mean, more than two, we get to three, then I start to feel like we got an MO. Right? It's something's just not right. Yeah. Uh, So in 2005, 17 years after Scott's death, Michael contacted Scott's brother, Steve Johnson, to say he had recently seen a news story about attacks on gay men around the Bondi uh, Tamarana Cliffs. Steve then hired Daniel Glick, an American investigative journalist, to look into Scott's death. The plan was to first find out if the area Scott died was indeed a gay beat, and second, find out if there had been any other violent acts that occurred there. Within the first day of the investigation, Daniel found out it was indeed a gay beat, and a very popular one at that. Police denied that it was, but when he asked around, the locals said it was a lover's lane type of place, and everyone knew about it. During an inquest into Scott's death in 2012, a coroner from New South Wales reenacted the scene with a dummy and felt there was just no way that Scott could have jumped. So the coroner overturned the original suicide finding and directed police to investigate Scott's death as a possible homicide. However, the dickhead cop that was given the case said he had a stack of 700 unsolved cases and this one was just going to go to the bottom so he'd get to it in like three to five years. Oh boy. But then six months later, this dickhead contacts Scott's brother Steve to say that not only was the area Scott was found not a gay beat, but that the case had, quote, zero solvability, uh, a zero solvability index. Which, that cop's about to feel like a real dick. Because he is one. (laughs) After intense pressure from the media, police reopened Scott's case, but didn't make it very far, despite the fact that Daniel had compiled a list of 50 to 60 potential suspects. In 2015... Another New South Wales coroner decided that there was enough evidence to open a third inquest into Scott's death. And November 2017, Scott's family, uh, uh, Scott was finally, sorry, uh, declared the victim of a hate crime. After receiving no new leads, the Johnson family doubled the reward from one to two million dollars in March of 2020, which led to a tip from a police informant. And less than two months later, police arrested 49-year-old Scott White for the murder of Scott Johnson. Whoa. I want to point out, and this is partially why this all ended up being very upsetting, 
49 years old in 2020 means that at the time of Scott's murder, this guy was 17 years old. Whoa. And that's just really upsetting to me as a mother. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's going to be a frequent thing that happens throughout this. So brace yourselves. Scott White pleaded not guilty in January and the pretrial is set to start in July of this year. Wow. So we can hope for the best. Yeah. Hopefully justice will be served. I just find it amazing that that cop said zero solvability. And it's like, the, even the documentary didn't have that it's arrested someone because the documentary came out before this guy was arrested. So wow. I find that amazing. So case number five brings us to 1989 and the Win TV news anchor Ross Warren. Ross was described as ambitious, caring, thoughtful, and an all-around beautiful person. For the sake of job safety, Ross was in the closet, but was known by friends and family to visit the bars along Oxford Street. There were a lot of gay bars in and around down Oxford Street. So on July 22nd, 1989, Ross went for drinks with friends and never made it home. A close friend named Craig Ellis decided to check Mark's Park at Tamarama, as that's where the two had originally met. When Craig got there, he found Ross's car parked at the top of the park entrance. His wallet was on the front seat. When police were notified, they just didn't seem interested, So Craig and the friends go back to Mark's Park and decide they're going to search for Ross on their own. But they didn't, all they found were Ross's keys on the rocks at the base of the cliff. But they weren't just lying there. They were in a part of the rocks that had like been eroded away by the water. And so it was like a little pocket. So there was zero chance that they could have fallen to this place. They would have been specifically placed inside this place within four days police said that ross clearly fell into the sea even though the keys could not have possibly landed there if he had jumped the police said his body will wash up well as of may 2021 ross warren's body has never been found wow he was only 24 years old we will uh come back to ross later on in our story yeah on october 14th 1989 36 year old graham painter was found at the base of a 50 meter 164 foot cliff at tathra beach on new south wales south coast graham's jeans were around his knees and his sweater or jumper uh was over his head police were quick to blame the fact that graham had been drinking heavily the day before he was found But I'm quick to point out that Graham's death scene has eerie similarities to Paul Rath's death scene. So maybe they should holster their homophobic tendencies and actually do their job? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well said. Oh, oh boy. It's, It's still so early. Now, some of these cases were mentioned on the documentary and some of them weren't. I was focusing on a specific area and a manner of death, so I branched out a little bit to showcase as many cases as possible. But one case that was on the documentary is that of John Russell. Now this case nearly broke me. And I think at some point, if in interviews we have been asked before, like what's a case that bothered you? And my go-to answer is Jean Bonnet, because if I close my eyes and think of her, 
I still see her autopsy photos. And now, same for this uh, particular gentleman. So they interviewed John's brother as well as their father. And the pain that those two gentlemen clearly feel is just so heart-wrenching. Especially when you hear their dad, Ted Russell, say, quote, He was the son, the oldest boy. So doesn't matter he's gay or whatever, he's still your kid. Which may not seem like much to some people, but I feel like that is so beautiful that like an older generation, because this is quite an older man, was in the in the early 90s, late 80s, was like, you know what? I don't care if he's gay or not. Yeah. He's still my kid. And I think that acceptance is really beautiful. Yeah. John Russell was a 31-year-old bartender who was last seen drinking with friends at the hotel in Bondi on November 23rd, 1989. The next morning, his body was found at the bottom of a 12-meter, 40-foot cliff at Marks Park. His injuries were consistent from a fall from that height. Police noted that John had a high level of alcohol in his system and ruled that he had accidentally fallen off the cliff. Once again, those police and their accidental deaths. <laughs> Photos were taken at the crime scene, and now I'm going to be honest. I have not decided yet if I will post them on the case file or not. Fair. Normally, when they when there is a photo especially when they'll turn around and show it on a documentary, they blur out certain things. There was no blurring. There was no, you see just his full body there and the blood and yeah, he fell face first into just rock. So yeah. Yeah. So it's, I, I, I will probably post them under a, like a warning folder sort of thing. But, um, some of them are not for the fainted heart. Yeah. So Fair enough. I will say that. So, I mean, these photos, just to say the word brutal doesn't even really do it justice. Right. So in 2005, a new coroner found that John was thrown to his death as he would have needed some sort of momentum in order to get him into the position he was found in. Not to mention he was facing the cliff and his feet were pointed away. So if he had jumped, he wouldn't, unless he jumped backwards. Like, there's just not a way he would have jumped on his own. And he was far enough from the cliff that unless he took a giant running leap, which we assume he did not, right? it's most likely that he was thrown. If only police had had some sort of proof that violent attacks had been happening in the area. Oh, yeah. Like, maybe... An attack on December 19th, less than a month later. Alan Boxell was assaulted in Marks Park by a group of teenagers asking him if he was a, quote, poofter. Their words, not mine. When he said he was, they bashed him with a skateboard, breaking six of his ribs. Oh my God! Alan managed to get away and reported his attack to the police, where he identified two of the assailants as 16-year-old David McAuliffe and 15-year-old leader of the Bondi Boys gang, Sean Cushman. We will discuss both Sean and the Bondi Boys later. I'm also realizing I keep going back and forth between Bondi and Bondi. It depends what comes out, folks. I'm We're all on a journey here. Absolutely. Tomato, tomato. Uh, yeah. Then just days later, 
On December 21st, 1989, 22-year-old David McMahon was jogging the Bondi Beat when he was tackled. Four or five teenagers did the assault, but there was about 18 kids present, including four girls who were cheering the boys on. Oh. And the spot that David was attacked? Almost the exact spot where John would have fallen from. One of the attackers then said to David, quote, Let's throw him off where we threw the other one off. Whoa! Thankfully, David managed to escape and report his crime to the police. When he looked through mugshots, he also identified two of his attackers, one being Sean Cushman. The police later called David in to give an official statement, and when he arrived, they put him in a jail cell for a few hours. He could, he could hear them just laughing at him, and David admitted, quote, I felt I did something wrong. I could not get out. I couldn't get it out of my head. It was making me very upset. I was young and naive, and I thought I was being arrested for being gay, which is one of the more heartbreaking things I've ever said or ever read. So it's just been a journey. So despite multiple uh, assailants being identified, no one was charged in either incident due to a, quote, lack of evidence. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, because eyewitness have Okay, yeah. Yep. yep. And I guarantee if they tested that skateboard. Yep. yep. Or even looked at it, because I bet it still had blood on it, because yep. they're kind of wankers. You know what? It depends what country you're talking about to depend on what slang is going to come out of your wealth. I'm pretty sure wanker is more of a UK thing. I think so, yeah. But... You know what? I'm I'm my brain is like take your slang. It's international. The Commonwealth, okay? It's you're still in the Commonwealth. You're doing great. Yeah. yeah. And I know what you're thinking. Christy, these assailants, as you call them, were only teenagers at the time. Surely they felt horribly guilty and never committed another crime again. Well, David McOliffe is definitely going to be back in our story oh, later on. No. But what about Sean Cushman? Well, in 1999, Sean and a friend named Aaron Martin attacked a 28-year-old man while he walked down the street with his fiance. This being a man and woman now. So this is, we're not even talking a, a gay incident at this point. Not just beating this poor man for reasons I still can't figure out. They threw him in front of an oncoming bus. Aaron was found guilty of grievous bodily harm and Sean was convicted of being an accessory to the assault. He literally pushed another human in front of a bus and somehow that's not considered murder. And this guy died. Yep. He did. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's wild. And the fact, oh boy, now listen, I don't know if he comes up again in our story or not, but the fact that like that could have been avoided considering we had mm -hmm. two other victims identify him, a life could have been saved. I mean, that's a tangible example where if he had been properly investigated, he could have been charged, he could have been given jail time, and this person's life literally could have been saved. I mean, that's that's pretty yeah, egregious. Yeah, and spoiler alert, same could be said for David McAuliffe, <sighs> who, again, we will yeah. we will get to him. So, back to the Sydney Cliff murders with victim number eight 
on January 9th, 1990, the body of 28-year-old Canadian named Simon Blair Wark was found at the bottom of a cliff on Sydney Harbour's south head, known as The Gap. Some of Simon's clothing and possessions were found at the top of the cliff, and since Simon was taking antidepressants and The Gap is an infamous suicide spot, the police were quick to just assume suicide. Simon's family believes that his death needs to be investigated as a possible murder. Police aren't hearing it. <sighs> On August 22nd, 1992, 64-year-old Cyril Olson was attacked and then drowned in Rush Cutters Bay. Oh. The ME has stated that Cyril drowned after an accidental fall. However, Christy is stating that Cyril was not only missing both his pants and his shoes, but that he was killed in an area known for being a popular gay beat, and since Cyril was a gay man, it isn't as far stretched to assume that he could have been assaulted by one of these gangs. Yeah. And one detective named Stephen Page, who will come up again later in our story, said, quote, We wouldn't stand for it if it was a woman or child who had been bashed and then fell into the harbor. And honestly, Stephen, agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And the great news is, and I'm going to spoil it for you early, you're going to like Stephen. Hey, well, it also is interesting because Stephen Page is, of course, the name of the lead singer of the Bare Naked Ladies, not the same Stephen Page, I'm assuming. <laughs> Unless he had a very quick career change. Yeah. It's not likely, but no. Huh. How do you like that? How do you like that? I like that Canadian factoid. There you go. I also like the usage of the word factoid. God, I should be using that. Yeah, gotta put it in there. Now, with all of these attacks happening, who is responsible? Well, it turns out there are a lot of gangs in the area at the time, and that they treated gay bashing as though it was a sport. Uh. And they weren't territorial. And they didn't mind if other gangs came into their own area, so they moved around themselves. The thing that irks me the most of these gangs is most of them were teenagers. As someone with a teenager, I, the idea just sickens me. Sickens me. So one known gang at the time was the Bondi Boys, run by the asshat that I've already mentioned <laughs> far more than I'd like, Sean Cushman. Yeah. Now, our dear Sean here, of course, claims that they were simply just a group of friends hanging out and that they were in no way a gang. However, this not gang consisted of at least 30 teenage boys and girls who frequently used gay bashing as a form of initiation. One of the members said, quote, we were just wild, one in, all in, which sounds more like a mob to me than a massive friend group. These groups were far from innocent. Some of their members later admitted to being the lure, so when a gay man was near, this person would send strong vibes. They'd go off in the bushes together, and the rest of the group would jump out and beat them. Oh, God. Their leader, Sean, of course, has always claimed his innocence, although while collecting a drug debt in 1999, Sean threatened a woman by saying he killed a man at Bondi and got away with it. So he'd have no problems doing it again because, quote, coppers are too fucking stupid. His words, not mine. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Another recurring character in our story, David McAuliffe. And I hope I'm saying his name incorrectly. <laughs> just, for sp 
<laughs> just for spite. Sure. This piece of shit attacked David McMahon and Alan Boxell, and despite being identified, was never charged. Well, seven months after those attacks, 16-year-old David was at it again. David, along with his brother Sean and a friend named Matthew Davis, would come to be known as the Tamarama Three after they attacked Jeffrey Sullivan and his friend at Marks Park on July 21st, 1990. The men were hit, kicked, and beaten with a claw hammer and a baton. Ah. During the assault, one of the men either fell or was pushed to his death from a cliff. I'm so sorry in advance. 34-year-old Thai national Krishakorn Radajuratharaporn. <laughs> Maybe. I'm so sorry. I mean no disrespect. I yeah. just... No, that's a long I don't one. Know. Yeah. I, I, I don't know how to do that. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't want to not mention him of because course. I couldn't say his name. Yes. He is said to have died either from drowning or from his injuries, which included extensive lacerations, bruising, fractures to his skull and spine and brain damage one of the three one of these three jackasses boasted to friends at school about the crime and added quote see the blood on my shoe i was kicking him in the head after the police conducted an actual investigation david sean and matthew were arrested and later charged for murder the Tamarama Three were each sentenced to 20 years in prison and somehow are still assholes. After their arrest, one of these pieces of garbage said, quote, the easiest thing with a cliff is just hurting them over the edge. Jesus. And if the Bondi Boys and the Tamarama Three weren't bad enough, there's the Alexandria Eight. Oh, my God. Most of these kids attended Cleveland Street High School. And right across the street from the school's practice field was a toilet block in the area known as Alexandria Park. This particular toilet block was a well-known gay beat. On October 24th, 1990, this group goes looking for, looking to do some, quote, poofter bashing. And when they see the toilet block is empty, they find a number written on the wall and call a man to lure him to the building. The man in question is 33-year-old New, Z New Zealander Richard Johnson. When Richard arrived, the group of 8, 15 to 17-year-olds took turns punching and kicking him until his liver ruptured. Oh my God! Police described it as, quote, the most severe bashing a man can receive without the use of weapons. The Alexandria 8 got caught as the bruising pattern on Richard's skull matched the shoes or trainers of the suspect uh. and they were subsequently charged with Richard's murder. The trial date was set, but the kids were still allowed to continue attending school as though nothing happened. The principal said that he was pressured by the kids' parents to let them stay so that they would, quote, have some sort of supervision. What? If your child is part of a group that viciously beat a man. Your child needs a little more than supervision. Yeah. Yeah. And also, yeah, like you may 
you may have to, I don't know, really devote some time and energy to, to figuring out how to handle this situation. <laughs> Not as easy yeah. as just continuing your life and using school as a babysitter. Like, this is going to require some yeah, serious planning about what you're going to do and how this is going to work. And wow. Oh, my mm-hmm. God. I also wish I knew all of these kids' names so I could scream them from the rooftop, but mm. unfortunately, I do not. Right. So far, I've only been able to find Ronald Morgan and Dean Howard. They're not going to hear this, so that means nothing well, to them. Well, they can go straight to hell. How about that? A hundred percent. These kids are allowed to murder a human being and still attend regular school. Also at that same school at the time was a teacher by the name of Wayne Tonks. He was known for being reliable, an impeccable dresser, and beloved by his students. Wayne was gay, but because of his job, he was very much closeted. One of the Alexandria Eight taunted Wayne at school about his sexuality. The kid was suspended for four days, but chose to never return. One day, Wayne didn't arrive at school. This is very much out of character, so a detective was sent to his house. Once there, the detective found that Wayne's apartment had been ransacked. The cord of his telephone had been cut, and there was a piggy bank smashed near Wayne's body. Once again, I need to say, the crime scene photos are unsettling at best, and the more I think about them, I'm going to fall apart as we do this, which is the most not professional I've ever been. So, uh... A boy named Benjamin claims that after getting Wayne's number from the Alexandria toilet block that he had consensual sex with Wayne, although there's no evidence of that, and that afterwards Benjamin became anxious about getting AIDS for no reason. So he decided to take out some anger on Wayne. He left the apartment and came back with a friend and a baseball bat. Wayne was beaten with the baseball bat bound at the knees and ankles, gagged and blindfolded with tape, and if it wasn't hard enough to look at, they put a plastic bag over his head and left him. Oh, my God. The boys involved in this assault were not members of the Alexandria Eight, but rather just two random 16-year-olds named Peter Kane and Benjamin Andrew. Benjamin claims that he had been teased at school for possibly being gay, so he reached out to Wayne for advice. Both kids were charged for Wayne's murder. Peter was convicted of murder, and Benjamin was convicted of manslaughter by reason of provocation, which is some bullshit, but we're going to put a pin in that for a moment. But never fear. The Alexandria Eight were in fact charged and convicted for Richard Johnson's murder. In 1990, three members of the group were found guilty of murder, while the other five were found guilty of manslaughter. So, if nothing else, they were charged, and they did do time. Yeah. I don't know how much that helps, but... It doesn't, because also, for me, a huge part of this is, I don't know where these manslaughter charges are coming from, and I know we don't know the exact ins and outs of each boy's involvement involvement but the fact that they were i mean the one thing i had written down while you were talking was premeditation they had literally been baiting baiting luring going into the bathroom finding a number to call it to bring someone 
And I'm not saying that it would be better if they came upon someone and randomly chose to beat them to death. Nothing would make it better. But there's something that's very twisted to me that they were going out of their way to lure men, to bait them, to call them, (laughs) to... And to me, I don't think that that's ever... Anybody who's involved in any crime like that, that's manslaughter's off the table as far as I'm concerned. Yep. Well, lucky you. Professor Oxborough is in the house. And after the break, I am going to get into manslaughter versus murder. Because what's more bright than talking just severe death? Listen, what I like is that we were on the same page. We share so much of a brain that I knew exactly where you were going and I didn't even know it. But you heard the lady. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a quick break, grab another drink, hit the can, come back, and we're going to keep on talking about this very, very important and very brutal documentary, Deep Water, the real story, on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails, Famous Fatalities Edition. Healthy snacks have a bad reputation, and let's be honest, most don't taste very good. They don't fill you up, and they certainly don't satisfy your cravings. This episode is sponsored by Monk Pack, who makes snacks that taste like our favorite sugary treats, but with one gram of sugar or less. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars contain one gram of sugar or less, two to three grams of net carbs, and they're only 150 calories. They're great for anyone following a keto lifestyle and the perfect snack for anyone who's trying to eat better or cut back on sugar and carbs without sacrificing taste. Now, for those who follow me on social media, you know that my boyfriend is a very fit man. He lives on bars, okay? And he was blown away by the Monk Pack bars. (laughs) We got sent a case of them. And let's just say after the first day, there's only a couple left. I'm not kidding. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars have a perfect balance of sweet and salty, a crunch from whole nuts and seeds, but still manage to be soft and chewy. They come in delicious flavors like sea salt dark chocolate, caramel sea salt, and peanut butter dark chocolate. Now, when I asked my boyfriend, he said it's the macadamia white chocolate that does it for him and that he did not believe that there was less than a gram of sugar in there. He said he must have read the label six or seven times because he thought I was pranking him. They're perfect for a quick snack to satisfy your sweet tooth without guilt. Enjoy Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars as a quick breakfast while running errands or after a workout. In addition to being keto-friendly, the bars are also gluten-free, plant-based, and non-GMO, with no soy, trans fat, sugar alcohols, or artificial colors. You can also sign up for a subscription to your favorite flavors, which saves you 10% on every order and ships them to you automatically. Getting them delivered on a regular basis can be a complete game-changer in your effort to eat healthier. So try it for yourself and you'll see. We have a special deal for our listeners, 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting MonkPack.com and entering our code TCC at checkout. And Monk Pack is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. To get started, go to MonkPack.com, that's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com, and select any product, then enter the code TCC at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monk Pack, delicious, nutritious food you can count on. We thank them for sponsoring this podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails, Famous Fatalities Edition. Before the break, Christy teased that we were going to start talking manslaughter versus murder charges, and I am jazzed. I can't wait. This is right up my alley. Let's get into it. Well, first, I have to start with educational side note. 
I wasn't going to do any in this episode. And then it, it was bigger than me. It is. Yeah. Uh, so Australia has a different legal system than North America. Over here, one can be charged with first degree or second degree murder. First degree means murder was intentional and premeditated, whereas second degree murder means it was it was an intentional murder, but not planned in advance. In Australia, there is only a murder conviction without any degrees. This murder conviction means that it can be proved that someone killed a person with intent and forethought to kill. Manslaughter is the lesser charge of a homicide without the intent to kill. In Australia, the average sentence for murder is 20 years. The average sentence for manslaughter is seven years. North America also has manslaughter charges, but it's broken up based on severity, like voluntary manslaughter would be if the murder happened in the heat of a moment in like a sudden fight, something like that. Involuntary manslaughter is when you cause someone's death while you're committing another crime, like someone dies while you're robbing a bank. So they don't have the first degree, second degree that we have. Theirs are basically just you either committed murder or you committed manslaughter. I see. Manslaughter is a lesser charge, but that's kind of where they're sitting at. And my apologies to the people of Australia if uh, and of anyone in the legal system if I mucked that up in any way. So, you know. So let's talk about the bullshit manslaughter charge in Wayne Tonk's murder. Both suspects were charged, yet the one who admitted that it was his idea got the lesser manslaughter charge. Peter was convicted of murder. Benjamin was convicted of manslaughter by reasons of provocation. So even though the entire crime was Benjamin's idea and he brought Peter in to help him, Peter still got a tougher sentence because Benjamin claimed he was provoked. Why did this claim get Benjamin a lighter sentence, even though he was the mastermind behind this assault? At the time, there was a legal strategy known as the gay panic defense, mm. in which a defendant claims they acted in a, quote, state of violent temporary insanity committing assault or murder because of unwanted same-sex sexual advances. That's right. Under this defense, if you kill someone of the same gender, all you have to do is claim they made unprovoked advances towards you, and then your murder charge gets lessened to a manslaughter charge, which at times can be half the sentence. So there's no your word against his. It's just a clear, oh, they hit on me and I didn't like it. Ugh. And that's all anyone needed to hear. The idea is the defendant can, quote, alleged to have found the same sexual advances so offensive or frightening that they were provoked into reacting, were acting in self-defense, were of diminished capacity, or were just temporarily insane. Mm. Wow. There is a similar trans panic defense that also exists in which assault, manslaughter, or murder of a transgender individual with whom the assailant had engaged in sexual relationships and claimed to have been unaware that the victim was transgender, producing in an attack of the alleged uh, trans panic reaction. Now, California became the first U.S. state to ban the gay panic defense in 2014, which also is shocking when you realize how recent that is. Yeah. 
Since then, 13 other states have followed suit, including Virginia and Vermont in 2021. I don't like that math, that in the seven years, only 14 states have banned, and there are so many states in America that have not banned it yet. On December 1st, 2020, South Australia became the last state in Australia to abolish the gay panic defense. So while the Alexandria Eight were in jail, police secretly recorded some of their conversations. The Deepwater documentary played some of the recordings, and honestly, it was tough to listen to. Yeah. Not just how boldly they speak of hurting other human beings, but the fact that hearing their voices reminds you that they are children. Ugh. And to be that young and have that much hate inside of you it's just very hard to stomach. So these monsters boasted that about gay bashing and throwing men off cliffs, or as they call it, quote, cliff jumping. They admitted to targeting gay men at Marks Park, calling it, quote, heaps fun. They also used the, de the derogatory F word, which I will not. Yeah, thank you. One spoke specifically about Richard saying, quote, I wish I would have done more to that fucking Johnson bloke. Apparently the little piece of shit is disappointed he only got two kicks in but was still stuck serving 10 years. And while I know it's possible they were just bragging for the sake of street cred in prison, I think these kids are guilty of far more than what they were ever charged with. Oh, yeah. For example, there was also a case of a 50-year-old school teacher named William Allen, who was beaten to death in Alexandria Park on December 28, 1988. The incident happened a little over a year before Richard's death and at the exact same toilet block. So I'm pretty quick to believe that they were probably responsible for William's death as well, which is why I would make a terrible juror because I am... Very quick to judge <laughs> certain people, specifically people who seem like assholes. Also, when the police were secretly recording the Alexandria 8, one of the 17-year-old offenders mentioned that they used a screwdriver or screwy in one particular attack. And a screwdriver matches the wounds that were found on William Allen's hands. So maybe I was not wrong to judge those pricks so quickly. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to say you're okay on that. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Also, very quickly, mm -hmm. a screwdriver matching the wounds on his hands. Now, these could have been defensive wounds, obviously. I get it. But, like, good God. And I know mm. that we're going to get into all of it, but you, to your point that you've made a couple of times the age of these kids and the brutality of these these attacks is really, I mean, yeah, it's wildly unsettling. Yeah. Yeah. All week since I've heard of it, that has been on my mind. And also, I can't stop thinking, what would it feel like for someone to be thrown off a cliff? <sighs> to that feeling of just falling and knowing, well... That's it. Like That's it. the fear, the terror. I just, I keep thinking about that and it just makes for a lot of sleepless nights. Yeah. 
And <sighs> you try and not let it get to you, but you know, again, they're they're children. I'm surrounded by kids around the same age, so it's just weird to think of them ever feeling that towards another human being. Like it just I can't. It's, and that there were so many of them. There were so many of these gangs. It's like... So many. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Unfortunately, these gangs that I've mentioned are just three of several gangs that operated in the area at the time. But the Bondi Boys and the Alexandria 8 were the most notorious for gay bashing along the northern beaches. And with so many gangs around, the question becomes, why were these attacks so common? I hate to sound like an old lady, but things were were not the same back in the day. Labels like LGBTQ2 plus didn't exist when we were kids, and even before our day, in April 1952, the American Psychiatric Association released its first publication of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and in it they listed homosexuality as a sociopathic personality disturbance. Obviously, as a society, we have learned that this is far from the truth, but feelings like this are just not going to go away overnight. I am not excusing the behavior. I just know earlier generations had certain beliefs, which we know now are wrong, but at the time they didn't know, and when a close-minded generation raises the next generation, it's bound to take some time before things are going to get any better. Again, I am not excusing their behavior, I'm just saying at that point, most human beings were less evolved. <laughs> yeah, and you're giving context too, just as a reminder yeah. that, you know, it was backwards in general. I think the, the, the leap, of course, always is to extreme violence. It's like, but I mean, th th that's... <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just, it's overwhelming. A hundred percent. Even in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, things were so different from what they are today. Sex between consenting men was still considered a crime in New South Wales until 1984, despite South Australia decriminalizing it in 1975. Tasmania didn't decriminalize it until 1997. Wow. Until then... Men could be prosecuted for the, quote, crime of buggery. Mm. And I'm sorry, but buggery sounds like a good time. Like, buggery <laughs> just... <laughs> the word is... It, it's just... The word to me alone is like... I don't know. It's a silly word that sounds made up by people who think they're smart. And it's like, you're an idiot. Yeah. You know what I mean? International side note. Oh, Illinois was the first state in America to decriminalize sex between consenting men in January 1962. Oh. And as of 2003, it is legal in the entire country. Canada decriminalized it in 1969. <laughs> I literally wrote nice in my notes. <laughs> Uh, and they Coast, wanted to do it in 68, yeah. but they were like, hold on, yeah. hold on, this will be good. Yeah, they were like, trust me, trust, it's we're worth playing it. the long game. It's worth yeah. it. Kudos to Italy for being way ahead of the game and decriminalizing it in 1889. Hey, wow, good Kudos, them. Italy. Italy just feels like they do what they want to do. It feels like a freer 
And I feel like they're probably all happier about it. Oh. So we could learn a thing or two. In 2020, homosexuality remained illegal in 71 different countries and is still punishable by death in several others. So after the laws change, once closeted gay men were now free to live their truths openly. However, the public was not so quick to welcome this change. The 1980s also brought the AIDS and HIV epidemic, which brought with it heightened public fear and pushback against the gay community. At the time, people wrongly believed that only gay men were the carriers of the virus, so it caused a lot of panic. And of course, the government, you know, wouldn't help with that. Some assailants went after gay men because of a misguided belief that gay men were pedophiles. Mm-hmm. A police officer named Stephen Page, who I've mentioned once before and will mention later on, said, quote, you don't tend to have crossover there. (laughs) Stephen gets it, is my point. (laughs) Again, I think it all comes down to people believing misinformation and raising their children to share those beliefs. And it just comes down the line as like homophobia, racism, sexism, all of it. Assaults became even more frequent. In 1990, the Surrey Hills and King's Cross police reported 38 gay-related assaults in a single month. And that's just the ones that were reported. It is believed that for every death, there were dozens of assaults that went unreported. It is estimated that only 18% of the attacks were reported because many members of the gay community did not believe their report would be treated fairly. And in these attacks, why are so many of the perps teenagers? Yeah. Well, I think it goes back to the idea that they are a product of their own environment. I'm not saying they are, aren't also to blame. They are responsible for their own actions. But I believe that they may have come from environments where that sort of vicious behavior is tolerated. There has been the excuse that it's not their fault. They didn't realize it was illegal to gay bash. Ugh. And to that, I say once again, you are responsible for your own actions. A study was done that revealed in 6% of attacks, the age of the attackers was between 10 and 15. Oh. And 43% of the attacks were carried out by people between the ages of 15 and 20. The idea that any 10-year-olds willingly took part in an assault turns my stomach (laughs) because once again we're back to a part where i have an almost 10 year old and the idea that he could ever partake in anything like that just makes me physically ill uh in the documentary someone interviewed some teenagers who seemed to be about 13 to 15 years old and asked them their thoughts on gay people one said quote i hate them when asked why, he said, quote, I don't like them, how they act and shit. So didn't really have an answer. That felt very, he heard it from somebody else, and that's just suddenly who he is. A 16-year-old said, quote, they just have some disorder in their mental minds because otherwise they wouldn't be having sex with other men. So the rock star reporter who was interviewing him then went, oh, so you don't have sex for pleasure then? To which the kid responded with, oh, I've never had sex. (laughs) So shut the fuck up about it, kid. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, call She's... us call us in a few years. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think you really, you know, hit the the nail on the head also that it's like is a 10-year-old going out the front door and making those choices probably not. It's probably some level of what is your home life like in terms of building your attitudes about the world and then I'm going to guess that it's probably falling in with older kids and you know and then following suit like I don't know that there's you know what I mean it feels again like but then when you start to think about it that way it's like then that just perpetuates as a generational gang then it's like well and I guess that's how gangs do perpetuate is that, you know, they're constantly looking to recruit younger members and bringing them in and stealing them of their innocence in some way and getting them involved. And then they're in it and then they form their opinions and they have their group and 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 the group shares those opinions, et cetera. Right. It's I mean, it's just it's I think it's just it's, it's so overwhelming to think about that, that it's such a specific and targeted situation and the statement that it's like well they didn't know it was illegal to gay bash it's like do they know whether it's right or wrong to hit somebody that's because i think that's, that's something that point. most toddlers know you're not yeah. supposed to hit people and so then if you extrapolate it out from that and it's like well but they didn't know that it wasn't a, oh it was illegal if the person was gay it's like now we have a real real crisis on our hands if they think that there's a that, that a gay person is not a human right that's the other thing is it doesn't seem like they were attacking anyone else these so, gangs yeah mm-hmm. so it just feels like they had their reason and it was dumb for lack of better <laughs> and word. terrifying a hundred percent. I just keep thinking about American History X. That's what I keep coming back to for some reason as you're talking about this. I don't, well, I do know why. But that's like what I keep thinking about this whole time is it feels like it's like that kind of gang that it's like we're against this one thing. This is where we all belong. And we want to literally destroy, hurt, destroy, etc. And that's just, again, terrifying. Some people will do whatever it takes to belong somewhere. Or to feel like they belong somewhere, whether they agree with that place or not. Yeah. That sounded like it was coming from somewhere, but I feel like I really pulled it out of my ass. Or maybe Brandy's. I can't tell. It sounded very wise. Thank you. You're welcome. So this kid, Mr. I can't believe they're choosing to have sex with men. Oh, I've never had it myself. He's never had it. But he's allowed to have a strong opinion about it. Well, a retired police officer said that the perpetrators of these gay hate crimes had a distinctive profile, predominantly white, young, single, unemployed males. Their motives for killing include extreme homophobia, violent conceptions of masculinity, and for at least some of the perpetrators, an internal battle with their own sexuality. One man who took part in various gay bashings in his youth admitted he admitted that he just followed the group around and the group philosophy of one in, all in. He said he now regrets the attacks and blames peer pressure for his misspent youth. The man also now identifies as gay, so I assume that plays part of his immense guilt, possibly? Uh, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, some of these kids grew up not regretting it at all. 
I saw one teen who is in his 40s now who said he'd do it again tomorrow if he needed to. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. And then when asked why they attacked, one said, quote, "Eh, it was something to do. Which is enraging, but also heartbreaking at the same time. The idea that other human beings aren't worth anything to you is just unimaginable to me. Uh, One man who was found guilty of killing a gay man in his youth has since said, quote, my actions caused someone to die. I was wild. I was angry. I was just a very maladjusted young kid. Again, for me, it comes back to their environment. But even then, you start to wonder, how could someone so young be filled with so much hate? Now, the good doctor over there can probably get into that better than me. I think it comes down to peer pressure, but also immense desire to be part of something. Everyone wants to feel like they belong. And unfortunately, in these cases, these are not the groups to belong to. Some of the groups also saw gay bashing as a rite of passage. And for most, gay bashing was seen as a sport since they knew they'd get away with it since the police were not keen to help. So, I mean, it's just gross to me. Yeah. So, so if you didn't notice, I did uh, try and slyly call you the good doctor. Uh, I, want you I, to... I can't believe I have not ever just called you Doc, because that feels right. <sighs> That's We're starting to get somewhere real good. I did write down my nickname question mark about five minutes ago because I was starting to get antsy for it. I just wanted to know. I like mm-hmm. it, the good doctor. I like Doc. Um, yeah. I think we're getting, uh, I mean, Doc Hollywood also speaks to me because I live yep. in Hollywood and you know classic movie mm-hmm. also it's like I'm not mm-hmm. a doctor but I play one on TV kind of like I'm not a psychiatrist psychologist but I feel like I you know I dabble you know what I mean yeah yeah oh I like it I because like if it. you think I couldn't also see you doing like a Fraser Crane I'm listening you yeah. know I could see that Oh my God, if you could have your own like call-in show, like um, uh, the Dolly Parton movie Straight Talk. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I've seen it so many times, which is almost embarrassing to admit. It's not embarrassing to love Dolly Parton. She's, uh, she's an icon. Yes. Um, I don't know if anyone has seen it or not. Unfortunately, it has James Woods in it. Oh, God. Basically. Some wins and some losses there. It is. It is. But it's Dolly Parton. She lives in like small town nowhere. Decides she's fed up with her life. She's going to go to the big city. And then while she's there, she goes for a job interview to uh, answer phones at this radio station. And then they kind of mix up who she is. And next thing they know, they think she's uh, a shrink. And they get her on the air to talk to people. And then it comes out, oh, she's not a a doctor. And so then they're like, well, well, we can't tell the public. They'll be upset. But you know what? It's Dolly Parton. And I could listen to Dolly Parton's cute little giggle forever. And I think she's, I think she nails that role personally. So I can't wait to post a picture of the poster on our uh, case file that I post on Instagram the night before. Um, the episode airs for people to be like, why are they talking about straight talk? And the answer is, why aren't we always? 
Well, also, why are we talking about straight straight talk at the beginning of Pride Month? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's yeah, a fun. That's a great, it's, it's, that's a but great, then yeah. it's going to get people thinking. They're like, how does this fit in? And I mean, this here you go. That's uh, that's part of what we do. We like to to tease up the build the anticipation. Yeah. One might say, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, I like it. Uh, so there was a suggestion that some of these kids may have been motivated by greed. They saw gay men as being people who were more reasonably well off, so they'd hit a gay beat to try and rob someone, as crimes at the gay beats, especially robberies, were less likely to be reported. So when all of these crimes were being committed, why didn't more victims go to the police? And now we're entering... Christy almost threw her laptop through a glass window. I didn't want to open it and throw my laptop out. I wanted to hear it smash (laughs) because I was so angry. I needed that. I wanted glass shatter as I walk away like it's an explosion. You wanted that soundtrack to that moment. Yes. Yeah. But I'm realizing now I don't want it to happen behind me because of the shards. I'd be injured so quickly. (laughs) I don't run. Um, (laughs) You and me both, baby. So let me start my very long-winded response to this question with a story about a doctor named George Ian Ogilvy Duncan. Born July 20th, 1930 in Golders Green, London, George earned numerous degrees, including a bachelor's degree in 1960, a bachelor of laws in 1961, a master's degree in 1963, and a PhD in 1964. In March of 1972, George became a law lecturer at the University of Adelaide. Six weeks later, George drowned. In 1972, homosexuality was still illegal in South Australia, so at the time, the banks of the Torrens River was, quote, the number one gay beat in the area and a popular place for gay or bisexual men to meet. Around 11 p.m. on May 10th, George... A man named Roger James and a third unidentified man were all thrown from the southern bank of the River Torrens by a group of men. Roger tried to find George but couldn't see anything in the dark water, and because George couldn't swim, he drowned. Roger suffered a broken ankle but managed to make it to shore, and after crawling to the nearest road, he was rescued by a passing driver who took Roger to the Royal Adelaide Hospital. Crazy plot twist side note. The driver who picked Roger up is a man named Bevan Spencer Von Enum. And while that name meant nothing at the time of the incident, in 1983, Enum would kidnap, sexually assault, and torture a 15-year-old boy for five weeks before killing him. Oh my God! He was convicted and is currently serving a life sentence for the crime. However, it is believed that he committed up to five similar crimes in the four years before he was caught. And that's the guy who picked who picked them up? And took him to the hospital. Just random? Yeah. It just so happened. Oh, that's... You know what, though? Qu- quick plot twist, side note, side note. <laughs> mm-hmm. I I tend to believe 
that just feels like a energy thing. Is it also possible he was in the area because it was a well-known gay beat, so he was already in the area at the time? Yep. I should be keeping score on Sharpie flips because <laughs> when I get you to throw a Sharpie... It happens not often, but when it does, it's serious. I also like that you brought logic to it and I was going straight to demon energy. I was like, there is evil demon energy. You know what I mean? If we've learned anything about our dear listeners is that they, they're on board with the demon energy. And I agree. I think there is definitely something about what kind of energy you have and who, what kind of energy you draw to you. A hundred percent. And I think that's how best friends tend to be tend to find each other. Oh, absolutely. Is there's like a shared energy and that's just, that's just what it is. Some in like sexual relationships, some may say it's lust. Bitches, it's energy and we all know it. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I totally agree with you. And I just think in this situation when there was something traumatic and violent and and what like that's just way too much of a coincidence to me it's bananas but it does bring up another word that we used to love and we've said many times synchronicity synchronicity it keeps coming i mean what are the it's just i mean if if he had never killed anyone his name would not even be a footnote in that story right but it's also the level of depravity like I mean, listen, any killing, don't get me wrong, but like kidnapping a 15-year-old and torturing them for weeks, five weeks before killing them. Again, we're going to talk about, you know, demons. I think that that's a candidate for somebody who could have a demon in them, but. A hundred percent. Yeah. So back to Roger James and Dr. George Duncan. So Roger gets to the hospital, but Roger and other witnesses to the event all decline to identify any of the attackers. The premier of South Australia offered government protection to any of the witnesses as they claimed to fear for their lives. Why would they fear for their lives? Maybe it was because uh, it was suspected that the men who assaulted Roger and killed George were three senior vice squad police officers. Stop. Only gets worse from here, folks. Oh, God. The public got so heated about the event that detectives from New Scotland Yard in London had to be brought in to investigate. The three squad officers, Francis John Colley, Michael Kenneth Clayton, and Brian Edwin Hudson, were found to have taken part in those three assaults. However, the report described the event as, quote, a high-spirited frolic. I'm sorry, what? Mm-hmm. Sorry, a high-spirited frolic that went wrong. That made it better. No. And no. since the investigation failed to find any sufficient evidence to prosecute the officers, since no witnesses would provide testimony, the officers were then asked to testify at a formal inquiry, but they all refused to answer any of the questions so they were subsequently suspended from duty and eventually resigned. In July 1985, a retired vice squad officer named Mike O'Shea said that the three officers were in fact guilty and that there was a cover-up within the force to protect them. 
He said that it was common practice for vice squad officers to throw gay men into the river and that some officers even assaulted them and on one occasion chased an individual while firing shots. This led to Francis, Michael, and Brian all being charged with the manslaughter of George Duncan in February 1986. <sighs> Unfortunately... Only Francis and Michael went to trial in 1988 and both were acquitted because they refused to testify. Wait a minute, what? Uh-huh. <laughs> Hold they, on, wait. They refused to testify. So the court went, you know what? Get out of here. <laughs> Stop it. I, I don't really have... I don't understand. What's that? I, okay, now no. hold on. I'm, I'm now okay. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking of energies. Now I'm reaching your your level of angry energy, and I've just been sucking at these cans, trying to get any more booze out of them because I'm so mad, and I'm trying to take the edge off. So, okay, we got another one going. I need to get back into this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've never heard of that in my life. You can't. Nope. That's that's it's. It, you can't. Then, I mean. If that's precedence, then nobody needs to testify ever and no one ever gets charged with any crimes? Like, what are we talking here? That's lunacy. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. It's, it's just, it's, it's as though every time we do a case that I find something and then I'm like, oh, that's maddening. It could never get mad, any more maddening than this. And that energy floats into the ether and the ether goes oh, here's something that'll really piss you off you know what I mean it just feels like never ending never ending like there's always something worse and how is that a thing how is it a thing all I have to say is not in my court the judge thank you the judge should be how my are nickname you not the, the judge. judge come on the uh, also with the in it it's a little terrifying, but also, like, there's power to it, you know? Blanche and the judge. Blanche the and ju the judge. The judge and Blanche, but just, like, N with a little apostrophe. The judge and Blanche. Oh, my God, I love it. I mean, that's a that's a reality show I want. Yeah. I don't you know if my liver could handle again, it. But again, <laughs> you refuse to testify in court, you're guilty. Like <laughs> 100%. I can't. Okay. Wow. All right. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry I derailed us. That has just, that nope. just threw me into a new level of rage because I don't mm -hmm. even understand. But I get that they were also police, et cetera, and that everything is bias and everything is awful and there's no justice and it's terrible. Continue. <laughs> That's where we're at. <laughs> yep. And while this is all horrifying, one, I guess, positive will say, it feels weird to say something positive, but a positive thing to come out of this was the public outrage over George's death at the hands of police led to South Australia becoming the first Australian state to decriminalize homosexuality. The murder attracted so much national media coverage that a liberal party member of the Legislative Council introduced a bill in July 1972 to amend the Criminal Law Consolidation Act that criminalized homosexuality. 30 years after his death, 
a memorial was placed near the site of George's murder. It reads, quote, in memory of Dr. George Duncan, whose death by drowning on May 10th, 1972, near here at the hands of persons unconvicted, started homosexual law reform in South Australia, making it the first state in Australia in 1975 to decriminalize homosexual relations between consenting adults. We will remember him. So we want to believe that the relations between the police and the gay community got better after that. Right? Well, on June 24th, 1978, a number of gay men, lesbians, and transgender people marched in Sydney's first Mardi Gras parade. Hundreds of people peacefully took to the streets chanting, quote, 2468, gay is just as good as straight. And I, I think that I, I'm on board with the rhyming of it. It really works. The syllables match. Like, I'm, I'm just it. very, my creative side is like, oh, that's nice. Yeah. How did the police respond to a peaceful parade? By charging into the crowd, swinging batons, and violently assaulting numerous protesters. 53 men and women were unjustly arrested, all of whom had their names and occupations published in the Sydney Morning Herald. Oh, God. And as a result, many of those people lost their jobs and or their housing. Oh my God. It is said that this event caused a significant amount of mistrust in the police for the gay community, something that lasted for several decades. Yeah. But that parade was the first gay rights parade held in Sydney and has since blossomed into the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras which is now one of Australia's biggest tourist draws with more than 70,000 people attending. It is the second largest annual event as it generates approximately $30 million a year for the state. Wow! And maybe Mardi Gras got better after that. It did. However, there was just one tiny incident of police brutality in 2013 where an officer grabbed the throat of 18-year-old Jamie Jackson and slammed his skull on the pavement. Oh my god. Uh, so I know what you're thinking. The first Mardi Gras incident was before gay sex was decriminalized, so surely the attitudes of the police got better after, right? Well, just with as the rest of society, the majority of police seemed to take a while to catch up with the times. Even after the law change, some police continued to harass men at gay beats. There was a group in the police department known as hoodlum patrols. They were also called troubleshooting squads. Their job was to clean up the streets. They wore plain clothes and drove unmarked cars and were meant to deal with hoodlums, I guess. However, these hoodlum patrols were well known for visiting gay beats and giving any man they find, quote, a hiding. In 1989, a man named Alan Rosendale headed to a local gay beat looking for a casual encounter. Another man named Paul Sims uh, was driving past the area on his way home from work. Paul witnesses a car pull up rather quickly. The driver gets out hands everyone who was in the vehicle a wooden plank from the trunk, or boot, as our Aussie and UK friends like to call it. 
Uh, Paul decided to park the car and see what was going to happen. The group of men, each armed with a piece of wood, ran into the nearby park. Suddenly, Alan Rosendale comes running out from the area and trips into the gutter. The group of men followed him and started attacking him. But being outnumbered, Paul feared getting out of the car, so he turned on the headlights. But the attack continued. He edged the car closer and closer to the attackers, still didn't stop. So Paul got close enough to their vehicle to write down the registration number, drove to call off to call the police, because of course at this point, no cell phones. When Paul got back to the scene, no one was there. Alan said he woke up on a stretcher at St. Vincent's Hospital and that he remembers seeing the police in the emergency room, but they never took a statement from him. Paul was brought in for an inquiry about the incident. He spoke with what he believed to be very high up members in the department based on the impressive epaulets on their uniforms. Paul is then told the registration that he wrote down belonged to a unmarked police car. An officer later said the police car had a diary in it where you could list all the places you went, date, time, etc., so the police would have a record of exactly who was in that car that night. Paul was then shown a police baton to ask if he recognized it, and Paul realized that, yes, a police baton is exactly the weapon he had seen this group using that night. Cut to a few years later, Paul is interviewed by a journalist named Rick Fenley, and after an article was published describing the incident, Alan Rosendale contacts Rick to say, hey, that was me. Once the article was out in the open, police contacted both Paul and Alan to get their statements. Took them a while. Ugh. They interviewed the two men, who I would like to point out, never officially met or spoke a word leading up to any of this. They interviewed the two men in two separate interviews on two separate days. And in the end, police said, quote, there's nothing to indicate that these two incidents are connected. And that's now the moment that I was going to throw my laptop through a window. I looked up. I just remember seeing that and going, oh, my God, looking up at the window and thinking, I just want to hear glass break. Yeah, <laughs> that's all I wanted. That's all I wanted. You know, and I also think it's important to note that, you know, our incredulousness is not because we are unaware of the true horrors that these communities go through of mm -hmm. course it's it's that when you start to hear these stories that you've specifically never heard before and you start to see these patterns and the just true vastness of what an epidemic it was it just is overwhelming and it's it's hard it's hard to like even though I, I guess the best way I could put it is even though I logically know that this stuff was happening and that that gay men were be tr being treated in this, these ways and you know, trans women and everybody under, you know, the LGBTQ umbrella. I logically know. But when you hear it, it's like, it's just a visceral, it's a, it's, it's yeah. just, it's tough. So again, I don't want people to think that it's like, really, are you so shocked that the gay men were treated so poorly? No, mm -hmm. it, no, we, we, I think that I can speak for both of us when I say, obviously, that's why, again, we think it's important to, uh, to be talking about these cases. But I just think it's important to note that this is really an emotional response that it's like, yeah, we, we logically had knowledge that this happened. But when you start to hear the specifics and the stories and the police involvement 
and that it's not just being negligent, but it's actually that they're the perpetrators. That's, uh, and again, I, again, I logically could say, yeah, does that surprise me that that was happening? No. Does it still like shock my emotional core? It does. It just does. It's like, you know, you hear about any, any horrors you logically are like, yes. Oh yes. I, I, yeah. I know that I'm not surprised, but again, it's just, it's a visceral response is my point. A hundred percent. So in November, 2014, the new South Wales minister of police stated that no evidence had been found to implicate the police in Allen's assault. Just eyewitnesses, the victim and eyewitness who pulled up, witnessed the entire thing. Yeah. But there's not a, yeah. No. Yeah. So a witness sees a man in an unmarked police car. Beat an unarmed man with police batons, and there is nothing to implicate police involvement. Well, don't fear, dear listeners. Christy has found a cop that won't make you want to throw anything. Hey, Detective Stephen Page, and I feel he's very confident in saying that you are going to like Stephen. Well, he's come up a couple times, and at this point, it's hard not to uh, put this man on some sort of white knight type pedestal because, good God, we need a hero. <laughs> or we let, let me we're rephrase. holding out for a hero. Yeah, that's where I was going to go. You re- you literally took the words out of my mouth. I'm I, so I, sorry. No, I, no again, right. we're, I just think we're sharing a brain tonight. That's all. Oh, that's. <laughs> Maybe the judge and Brandy share a brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, the judge. Oh, my God. I love it. Oh, it's just, it's right, it was right there the whole time. It was, it was right, right there. there. Yeah. We needed this to have that happen. We did. You know? Yep. So Stephen comes across a letter written by Kay Warren, the mother of 24-year-old Ross Warren, who went missing back in 1989. Police believe he fell off a cliff and that his body would wash up but it hasn't so for years Kay has been writing to the police her first letter was sent in 1998 nine years after Ross went missing she was asking for a coroner's inquest into Ross's case usually a person can be listed as legally dead after seven years but at this point Ross wasn't even listed as missing and of course Poor Kay didn't get a response, so she waited a year, sent another letter, this time attaching a copy of her previous letter. After still more silence, Kay sent a letter every year, always attaching copies of the previous letters for 11 years. And then finally, in 2000, White Knight Detective (laughs) Steve Page comes across Kay's most recent letter. And the beautiful thing... Detective Stephen was genuinely moved. Hey. Yeah, it's, we take the wins where we can get them. So much so that he started looking into Ross Warren's file, and he found out that the missing persons unit had no record of Ross being missing. Turns out that everything the original lead investigator said he had done in the case hadn't been done at all. So then Detective Stephen, who... I'm just always going to call him Detective Steven because he's earned that respect, Mm -hmm. uh, starts looking into other cases and starts noticing a lot of similarities, especially like how Ross Warren, Gilles Mantenay, and John Russell all had incidents at Mark's Park, not to mention 
all were poorly investigated. So in 2001, a three-year-long investigation called Operation Terradale begins when Detective Stephen and fellow decent investigators started looking into a number of serious assaults that were committed near popular gay beats in the late 1980s. The investigation into John Russell's death was found to be, quote, naive, inadequate, and disgraceful. While reinvestigating John's case, Operation Terradale, detectives noticed that in the crime scene photos, there were hairs found in John's hands. It is very obvious in the photos, so it would have been nearly impossible to miss in person. But according to the original report, the hairs were never tested or collected. So if they didn't keep the hair, maybe we can get a sample or something off the clothes that John was wearing. Well, luckily, they gave the clothes to John's family in a box shortly after John's autopsy. And the family just didn't have the heart. They didn't open the box. They just put the box. They kept it somewhere. So when this Operation Terradale shows up, they're like, you know what? We have the box. You can take it, do whatever you need. The downside is when they opened the box, they found out that the original police had washed all of the clothing. Stop! John's death was originally ruled a misadventure, but the new investigators believed it was a homicide. Throughout the investigation, they looked into Ross Warren, John Russell, Dave McMahon, Gilles Mantenay, and, oh boy, <laughs> Krishikorn Ratanajurathaporn? Gosh, I wish I could say that better. Uh, when it ended, Operation Terradale, Detective Stephen was praised for his impeccable work that was being described as, quote, a shining example of how police investigations should be conducted. I don't know why the operation ended when it did, but it did lead to the majority of these cases being reopened. So that was something. And then during that investigation, the New South Wales police gay and lesbian consultant Sue Thompson identified 88 cases between 1978 and 2000 that involved potential anti-gay bias. 30 of those cases were unsolved. This list includes Scott Thompson, as well as five more that Operation Terradale had on their list. The police decided to take the list seriously after intense media pressure and assembled Operation Parabell in 2013, which they quickly renamed to the far more badass Strike Force Parabell. <laughs> what? Which to me sounds like a movie starring Jason Statham. <laughs> Strike As Force if, Parabell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like you couldn't see that poster. He's shooting a gun or pointing it at someone. He's like, give me my, back my daughter and I'll... I don't even know what that accent was. <laughs> wow. Offensive. Not trying no. to be. No. Um, I, listen, look, I liked it. I'm having an Operation Strike Force currently on, from my bladder. So uh, very quickly, I'm going to just quickly pause. We're going to hit the loo and we'll be right back with more True Crime and Cocktails, Famous Fatality Edition. Okay, we'll be right back. <laughs> 
What's up, everybody? Lauren Ash here. Now, if you've listened to our show for a while, you know that I am gluten-free for health reasons. And the one thing that I miss more than anything is cereal. Big cereal fan. And there's just not a lot of gluten-free cereals out there that do it for me. Until now. That's right. I'm going to tell you about a little product called Magic Spoon. It's unbelievable, okay? Zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. There's only 140 calories a serving, and it's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and (laughs) GMO-free. I mean, come on. There's four flavors, okay? It's a variety pack. Cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. So good. These are the flavors of your childhood, okay? This is exactly the kind of cereal you want. So... Go to magicspoon.com slash cocktails to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code cocktails at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money, no questions asked. So remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash cocktails and use the code cocktails to save $5 on your order. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode and making this gluten-free gal's dreams come true. Hey, everybody, we want to tell you about our sponsor, Baron Jaeger. Baron Jaeger is a premium liqueur made with the highest concentration of all natural honey. This puts it in a class of its own. Additionally, at 70 proof, it's the perfect addition to any cocktail in need of an all-natural sweetener with a little kick. Sweet with a little kick sounds like me, don't you think? (laughs) Absolutely. Right, we're back here on True Crime and Cocktails talking all things Strike Force Parabell. So tell me a little bit more about this. Well, what I like is every time I've written it in my notes, it's all caps and bold. So I'm every time I see it, because in my head, I see the two words and go, Strike Force. It's a it's a commercial for an action figure. It's yep. it was a choice. It was meant to conduct a thorough investigative review to determine whether the suspected deaths of these 88 men between 1976 and 2000 could be classified as gay hate crimes. And the new investigators wanted to determine whether the original investigations were adequately conducted. And spoiler, I don't think they were. After a five-year investigation in June 2018, Strike Force Parabell released its final report in which they outline a lot. (laughs) Honestly, I did not read the whole thing. It's like a hundred pages long. Whoa. I skimmed it. I looked at, I searched through it for the parts that I needed. It will also be on our website at truecrimeandcocktails.com. Thank you. But they claimed of the 88 cases, they only reviewed 86 because one case had no record or material for it whatsoever. And another case was found outside of New South Wales. So of the 86 cases, 63 were solved and 23 remain unsolved, which sounds amazing until you realize that the list of 88 was first compiled, only 30 were unsolved. But it still means that seven cases were solved at some point during all of this, which is great, but it sounds less impressive from the report that says 63 were solved. So of the 86 cases reviewed during strike force only only eight cases were found to have evidence of bias they decided that only eight were possible gay hate crimes 
Honestly, the more of that report that I read, the more it felt like they were just doing this to appease the public and the media. Musical side note. One of the cases that Strikeforce said did not have evidence of a hate crime was the murder of 41-year-old Crispin Dye, the longtime manager of the band ACDC. Oh! He managed the band for eight years, and at the time of his death, was in Australia celebrating the release of his first solo album. In December 1993, witnesses reported seeing Crispin beaten by three unknown youths before they fled the scene with his wallet. Crispin died in hospital two days later. Was it a gay hate crime? I don't know. Crispin once told his mother, quote, People say I'm gay, but I don't know what I am. So maybe it was just a robbery gone wrong. Maybe they took the wallet because they were there anyway. We'll never know. Or it sounds like he could just be fluid. Yeah. And bef- uh, he was ahead of his time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So... Yeah. So, I mean, anything is possible. I'm not quick to rule out the gay hate crime. Yeah. But who knows? But along with the release of the report, the New South Wales police acknowledged that, quote, it is clear and beyond question that levels of violence inflicted upon gay men in particular were elevated, extreme, and often brutal. And the police force, quote, played a part in marginalizing the LGBT community and enabled society's acceptance of shocking violence directed at gay men during that period of time. I'm glad they acknowledged the brutal crimes that occurred. I know I'm still haunted by the case of 27-year-old Gerald Cuthbert, who was found at his friend's apartment in October 1981. His throat was slit and he was stabbed 64 times. Oh my God. I will just never understand that level of hatred and anger. And honestly, even though it wasn't one of the cases I planned to mention in this episode, I think it's a good example of the extremely violent and brutal crimes that have been inflicted on members of the LGBTQ2 plus community that society simply just sweeps under the rug. Because poor Gerald, that's pretty much all you can find about him. And you would think 64 times... That should be, people should be screaming about that, but nobody's really heard of it. Yeah. Uh, A memorial has been planned to commemorate the gay men who were murdered at Bondi and Marks Park in the 1980s. The artwork will be constructed in Bondi's Hunter Sculpture Park and has been welcomed by local LGBTI advocates. So it's something, but it's just not enough. It doesn't make up for not doing their job and properly investigating these cases in the first place. And it certainly doesn't make up for the cases that they were personally involved in. My hope for these Sydney Cliff murders is that the teenagers who participated in the crimes, who are now in their 40s and 50s, having lived their lives, realize that they denied so many people the chance to live theirs and that they'll finally come forward and face the consequences of their own actions. And if it's not the perps themselves, I hope that just mentioning these cases will lead to witnesses coming forward, anything to finally get these cases solved and give these families the peace they deserve knowing what happened to their loved ones. So that's where I'm going with that. Wow. Well, listen, well done. Not easy, not easy subject matter. Not that it ever really is, but I know that this one really did, you know, deeply affect you. And so, um, 
we appreciate, I appreciate, and I can speak for the listeners and say we appreciate all your work. It's, I think, it's it's treating humans like they're not humans. And it's it's the fact that just so many males were involved. I live in a home surrounded by males. And so it's just to, th- to consider them on either, like, to be attacked in such a brutal way, but also to be, like, the perpetrators. These assailants being, like, 13, 14 years old, I just... I can't imagine. I think of myself at like 13 and it's like, I, this is a horrifying story and I shouldn't even tell it. At 13, I was not ready to be like the big kid that everybody else seemed to be ready for. And I distinctly remember I got home. I was in the seventh grade and I got home from school and a friend of mine was called and was like, Hey, you want to go hang out at the mall? Just like, you know, hang out at the mall. Because what else do you do, right? You don't have money. And so I was like, oh, you know what? I can't. So I have to like do chores and stuff. And so she was like, yeah, okay. Maybe another time, whatever. It's cool. She'll go with someone else. So she went to the mall. The truth, dear listeners, was I didn't want to go to the mall because I didn't get it. I still don't really get the concept of just wandering around unless it's at Disneyland. What I was doing was I had this dollhouse that was one of my favorite things in the world. And it came with just the tiniest dolls that were only like an inch tall. And it was one of my favorite toys. And all as soon as I got home from school, I unpacked it from a hiding place I had because I was embarrassed that I was 13 and wanted to play with toys. And I closed my door and I put that dollhouse on my desk. And I had a grand time. That's what I'm saying. Do I regret not going to the mall? The answer is no. Do I regret not letting more people know I was a weirdo? And kind of just in that moment of everyone at that age seemed, I'm ready to grow up. I'm ready to be an adult. And I was like, what's the holdup? That was my issue. And then I got to be 16 and I was like, bring on adulthood. (laughs) What a silly thing to wish for. Yeah, listen, I mean, I was the same. I was still playing with my Barbies when I was 13, for sure, for sure. Right? Some kids just aren't, sometimes you're just not ready. I can't imagine being 13, 14 now in the time of social media and cell phones and all of that. Like, I just, I can't even begin to imagine it. But it's just, I can't, there was never a part of me at like 13 that I would have thought, you know what? I'm going to go with this gang and I'm going to kick someone in the face. You know, like there's no part of me. So I, there, I just can't wrap my brain around it. I can't wrap my brain around any time police are involved. Like you're supposed to be the one that people go to for help. And you know, that one of my biggest fears in the world, say it with me, everybody, crooked cops, dirty cops. It scares me more than anything for that exact reason. It's like, you know, if we can't trust them, who can who who can we trust? And and I I mean the answer is well nobody. And then that's that feels like chaos. You know, then it feels like what are we even doing? I I'm with you. Yeah. And I'm in, with you. It's in the it's movies. A lot. You don't find out they're dirty till the end. You know, and like everybody else knows, I can't think of a movie like that. The Departed does something like that, doesn't it? I don't know. I don't remember. It it was really long. I just remember it was like 
you get to stare at Matt Damon and you get to stare at Leonardo DiCaprio. So there she is. Call it Blanche, a win. everybody. Yeah. Oh, Brandy oh. and Blanche in the same episode. That's unprecedented. Yeah. Oh, I think Blanche is always here deep down, but she's just maybe trying to be more respectful this week. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I get it. Uh, no, I, I hear what you're saying, though. It, it does feel like a hard thing to wrap your head around because it was also. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to like comprehend how this could happen for those kids. And, you know, the one that really stuck out for me was the one that you were talking about where years later in their 40s, it was like, I would do it again. That's chilling to me, mm-hmm. you know, because I understand that there's probably a contingent of, of people, like some of whom you've mentioned, that they were in it and then they realized, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? I was caught up I was going along I never should have I feel guilt those are those are normal responses to those behaviors but to just say oh man I do it again like that shows a level of I mean a lack of empathy a lack of awareness a lack of so many things that's again chilling yeah and I just want to say there's the doctor doctor's in doc judge no, I don't know. <laughs> Doctor Judge is pretty funny. Oh, maybe it's a maybe it's a combo. I mean, Doctor Judge, I like that. Oh, I, I like that too. Because you're uh, multi-talented, it just makes sense, right? Oh, bless your heart. Bless your heart. Well, listen, uh, Christy Oxborough, thank you so much for telling us all about, uh, of course, uh, Deep Water, the real story. I mean, again, uh, a story I had never heard of. And I'm, I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of people that are also not familiar with this content. And I think it's a really important story, a really terrifying and awful time in history for so many reasons. But again, that's why we talk about history, because if you don't, then you're doomed to repeat it, as they say. And so I think it's a great way for us to kick off this this Pride Month theme. I do want to tease, you know, like we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we're going to have daily things on our social media, but we also have some normal uh, podcast episodes that are, you know, obviously going to be tied to this theme. Of course, we are going to have me doing a serial killer special, a gentleman by the name of Bruce MacArthur, who some know of, some don't, but he's actually a serial killer who was from downtown Toronto and really kind of rocked the city of Toronto, killing gay men in the, the gay village. He was also a mall Santa. It's a story that is horrifying, chilling, all of the above. Um, And it's interesting because I initially was going to talk about Jeffrey Dahmer because I think that that Dahmer, you know, the story that always sticks out to me about him was, was, and I'm wildly paraphrasing right now, so forgive me, was one of his victims got away and ran to the police, hysterical, and then, of course, Dahmer went out super calm and was like, oh, that's my boyfriend, we had a fight, and the cops were like, oh, okay, and then gave him his victim back, and he, of course, um, killed killed that person. And so, to me, it was like such another example of, of kind of what we've been talking about today, where, you know, the, the bias that the police have had historically and the, you know, discomfort um, during years past, the homophobia, all of the above, Um, but then, you know, when I started to read about Bruce MacArthur, I also was like, I think that this is also a story that needs to be told because I don't know that people know as much about Bruce MacArthur as Jeffrey Dahmer. You say that name, a lot of people know it. So I am looking forward to getting 
uh, to getting into I was going to say to getting into in, like into that case, but then I was like, well, I'm not looking forward to it, but I am. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a weird, true crime is a weird It's a weird umbrella. <laughs> yeah. Where it's like, I'm excited, but I shouldn't be. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. And then of course, we're going to have more episodes. Another one we're excited about, of course, is trans icon Marsha P. Johnson, who of course was a gay liberation activist involved in Stonewall, also murdered. We're obviously going to have to talk about her, uh, which we're looking forward to, uh, again, in this true crime way that we're discussing. Yes. And um, uh, there's more to come. But next week, we have a case that is probably one of our most requested ever. Yes. Certainly has been at the top of my list since we started doing the Famous Fatalities. Yes. And when you're saying, oh, but you have a Pride Month theme. You gotta listen to find out how it connects. Uh, do you want to tell the people nice. who they're gonna hear next week? Who they're gonna the case for next week? Oh, I don't know if I can do it as well as you were just doing that. <laughs> On the next true crime and cocktails, Natalie Wood. That's right. Again, I think I think probably our number three most requested after Jean Benet and Madeline McCann is, of course, Natalie Wood. And again, how does this connect to the theme? Well, again, you got to listen to find out. We're so grateful that you're here. We thank you all so much for listening. Please do give us a follow on social media at True Crime and Cocktails on Instagram and Facebook at Not Detectives on Twitter. You can also watch all of our unedited Zoom, Zoom all of our unedited Zoom episodes, our videos on TrueCrimeandCocktails.com, where there are also extensive virtual case files that Christy makes about every single case. They are phenomenal. You've got to check them out. And the one other thing I'd like to say, we haven't asked for this in a while. If you like the show, would you go on to the the, the Apple and leave us a nice review? It means a lot. You know, it goes a long way, and we haven't asked. Uh, regularly. We don't want to be broken records, but I will say that it means a lot and it helps us out in this crazy podcast world, which we are so grateful to be a part of. Um, so we thank you for that. And again, stay tuned to our socials for all things our Pride Month contest and make sure to check out our new merch store because it's my blood, sweat, and tears all over that thing, baby. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, people. Good night, everybody. Imagine a podcast. Now, imagine a musical. Now, imagine the two of them made one million babies. Well, you don't have to imagine it, because it's real, and it has a name. One Million Musicals. Each month, we bring you a brand new, original podcast musical featuring talent from across Broadway, films, and TV. You'll hear tales of spooky ghosts, Wild West shootouts, adventures on the high seas, and much, much more. One million musicals. Only a few hundred thousand to go. A Campfire Media Podcast. Campfire. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. 
Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.